Welcome to the 270th episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Rutherford. Stay tuned for my interview with Isla Morley, author of the new novel, The Last Blue. Stay tuned for the interview. This episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast is brought to you by Libro.fm. Libro.fm is the first and only company which lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore. Support your favorite local bookstore, and you can pick from more than 125,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers. You'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know who I'm talking about, but you'll be part of a different story, one that supports your local bookstore. If you're new to audiobooks, they're the perfect way to get more books into your busy life. If you already love audiobooks and don't know what to listen to next, check out the recommendations and curated list from the people who know audiobooks best, your local bookseller. There's a special offer now for reading and writing podcast listeners. Get three audiobooks for the price of one, $14.99, with your first month of membership. Just use the code RWPODCAST. Again, that's Libro.fm, purchasing audiobooks from your local bookstore, and use the code RWPODCAST. Stay tuned for my interview with Isla Morley. First, we have an excerpt from the audiobook of The Last Blue by Isla Morley published by Recorded Books, and narrated by T. Ryder Smith. Available wherever audiobooks are sold. Thirty-five years ago, Havens would have opened his eyes and thought of the day ahead as lacking. The surprise of old age is how comfortable a person can be with an empty day, how companionable it can be. If anything, Havens wants the day to empty itself even more, allow for memories to pay a visit, and should he decide to spend his time doing nothing more than sitting in his recliner and missing her, what's to stop him? Havens is neither by nature nor by habit an early riser, and it is only out of a sense of duty to an imperious old pigeon that he gets up rather than turn over and doze a little longer. When he stretches his arms overhead and arches his back, his joints creak in protest. He looks in the mirror at a face that seems both familiar and startlingly foreign. Old age is a menace. There's no abating it. Every day it claims more territory. Forgoing shaving, he splashes water on his face and puts on exactly what he wore yesterday a pair of saggy jeans, his red flannel shirt, a coffee-stained gray pullover, and sneakers mended at the toe with packaging tape, and humming tunelessly, wanders through the quiet house. He glances out the living room window at the pasture, pillowy with fog. The day, too, seems to be getting a late start. Havens would prefer to drink a cup of coffee before facing the pigeon, but the chirps coming from the enclosed back porch are insistent, so he leaves the coffee to boil on the stove and goes out to take his instruction. What are you in such a flap about? He notices the bird has worked loose the bandaging on his wing and the joint is exposed again at the break. 
You've picked yourself raw, silly. He removes the top of Lord Byron's cage and slides the window open so the pigeon can enjoy the brisk air. Fluffed up, the bird hops onto the windowsill, gives in to instinct, and plummets. Eight months convalescing, and still the bird refuses to accept his decrepitude. Havens respects this in any being, feathered or otherwise. He rushes outside to retrieve the bird before applying ointment, bandaging the wound, and getting his hands pecked at in return. Quit it, would you? Violence is never the answer. The bird knows Havens is a pushover. He tips over the seed tray as if to say, Slop. Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Isla Morley, author of the new novel, The Last Blue. Isla, welcome back to the podcast. So good to be here, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Sure. Well, if someone listening hasn't heard about your new novel, The Last Blue, yet, can you describe the novel? It's a historical fiction. It's about a mysterious woman with blue skin. Uh, who's been living a banished life with her family deep in the in the wilderness uh, of eastern Kentucky, in that part of the Appalachian uh, wilderness. Uh, she's been the subject of um, prejudice and bullying, and uh, in order to stay alive, she and her family uh, live very remotely from the nearby town a fictional town uh, called Chance, which is kind of loosely based on Harlan. And uh, she's trying to come to terms with her existence as a, a person who's um, been self-isolating all these years and, and what that means to her uh, for the rest of her life until a photographer and a journalist are dispatched from uh, Cincinnati, Ohio. They work for uh, President Roosevelt's Works Progress Administration, and they've been tasked to go to that area and capture the struggles of the people that are living in that region. And there was little known at the time in the 1930s about that region, um, and so here, here are these two field reporters, uh, and the photographer is um, desperate to kind of secure a future, a future for his failing career as a photographer. And so desperate for a story, a headline story, a scoop even, um, they hear about the blue people living up in this hollow. And, of course, they can't resist what that might mean. And so they take off after a headline story. And so do you remember the original idea that led you to write The Last Blue? I sure do. So, um, yeah, I was busy working on my previous novel that we had talked about above. And um, I was doing a rewrite, which means I get bored and look for ways to distract myself. 
So I was um, I was on the internet, and one of the things that popped up in my news feed was really startling. It was just this picture. It looked like an old daguerreotype photograph of a family. It was a family portrait, kind of set out in front of their old cabin, a very old timey looking setting, and um, half of the children in this portrait of nine people were blue. And I just thought, oh, this has to be a hoax. This is like the National Enquirer, you know, where, where babies born with an alligator head or something. I just thought, oh, this is too, this just can't be true. But yeah, if you want to know who that person is, you know, that that responds to clickbait, that would be me. <laughs> so, um, so I, I clicked on it and then I thought, oh, okay, so I was right. You see, it is a hoax because it wasn't actually a photograph. It was a painting. But I kept clicking and then I found out that that painting had been commissioned um, to accompany an actual uh, essay, um, uh, an article that had been written and published in a scientific magazine in 1982. Uh, Kathy Trost was the author of that um, five-page article, and it was called The Blue People of Troublesome Creek. And in it, she, she gave the history of these people that were living in this area, uh, stretching back to, um, I don't know, about 160 years, like the 1800-something, and um, to this chap called Martin Fugit, who was a French orphan, he was a stowaway, he came to the United States and eventually um, found his way to eastern Kentucky and, and settled on the banks of Troublesome Creek. He himself was not blue, and against astronomical odds, he ended up marrying this woman who, unknown to everyone, carried the same recessive gene that he was carrying that when together they started having a family their children started coming out blue. So this, this story just grabbed my attention, but really it was the paragraph right near the end. It was a couple of sentences. Um, this journalist has been um, interviewing the hematologist that, that was involved in first diagnosing these people. Uh, journalists have been um, interviewing descendants of the blue people. So in one of these uh, exchanges, this guy called Stacy um, is being interviewed by a journalist and, and he's, he's talking about having lived in that area and, yes, he was married to this Luna um, woman that other people had said, you know, she's just as blue as anything, like blue as a bruised plum. And and he's talking about their life together, and he's beckoning to the to the grave site where she where she's buried nearby, and all this. But when it comes time to answer the journalist's question as to whether she was actually blue, he just point blank refuses. And and then the article goes on. But I was just stuck with that image of this man sitting there being asked about his wife having blue skin, and him just being tight-lipped about that and it got me to thinking about how love works and 
when when we love one another what we're blind to or maybe not what we're blind to but what really doesn't matter at the end of the day and I knew then that I wanted to write a love story about two people very different um, backgrounds who looked very different who had different futures before them then who meet and try um, and find common ground. Interesting. So you mentioned earlier that this is a historical novel. What kind of research did you end up doing for The Last Blue? Yeah, I haven't written a historical fiction before. Um, so this was kind of fun. It, it had a lot of research. Fortunately, the Library of Congress uh, you know, is this gold mine. Because that era was so heavily documented by um, these photojournalists, by these field reporters that worked for the WPA. Um, there's just all these photographs. There are audio recordings in the Library of Congress where you hear these ancient voices speaking to us from the past. You know, it might be a guy behind his mule in the field and um, and field reporters asking him who he votes for and what is his religious affiliation and what does he think of the schooling. So, you know, in terms of getting a really good flavor for that era, the 1930s, um, and particularly that region. So I'd mentioned that there was very little known up until that point. But, um, you know, 20 years before that, there would be some kind of musician a songwriter that would go down to the region and they would, you know, secretly record these people singing or playing their banjo or whatever, and then they would go back to Nashville and they'd cut a record. Um, so you had, you had people like that. You had people coming down from New York who um, were very interested in the crafts that these people were making. So they'd, like, buy up all the banjos or the dulcimers or whatever, and then they'd go to New York and have this big exhibit and sell all these things. And so, But apart from that, there were just all these stereotypes, and they, a lot of them exist to this day. You know, we think of um, Hatfield and McCoys, you know, and you think about moonshine and hillbillies and snake handlers and all of that. That just kind of governs our thinking still to this day. But when you go into the research, you find, um, you know, much more nuanced and complex and rich uh, portrait of many different types of people that lived in that area, what drew them there, um, and what, what their struggles were. Um, and the research was fascinating, but as always, when you do a lot of research, you have to be careful, you know, that just that has to kind of seed the ground. Uh, you can't make that research show in your story. So what is your writing process like? I mean, you just talked about your, your research. Do you outline and plan your novels uh, extensively first, or do you write more orga organically? How does that work for you? Oh, gosh. Okay, I've written four books. The one book that I outlined because I thought I had such a good idea, the one book that I um, did that that fancy thing on a yellow pad where I knew everything was going to go here and how that chapter, that book never saw the light of day. My agent turned thumbs down and it didn't work for me. So 
I have I have that process that's much more frustrating. Um, it takes a lot longer. It just it's here's an idea. Let me close my eyes and see what the imagination presents. Uh, so as a result, my books take several years to write. Um, this one took me five years to write, but the the wonderful thing about doing it this way is that I end up being surprised. I don't know where the story is going and the kind of emotional responses I have to these imaginings and these plot twists that reveal themselves end up showing, showing on the page. If I'm surprised, my reader is going to be surprised. And so have you started thinking about uh, or working on your next novel yet? Okay. Do you have a whip or something? Are you like one of those slave driver people? <laughs> I do. I have two ideas. So, um, and one of them uh, is an idea that's also based on, on real life. I quite like this idea. You know, the blue people um, – you know, to to draw on the fact that they, that they really existed, uh, you know, just felt so um, so wonderful to me. So now I've got this other story uh, that is related to actually my family um, going back a few generations. Um, I have a great uncle who was the attorney who um, represented Ho Chi Minh. Uh, when he was incarcerated in Hong Kong and he was um, going to be executed. And it, it was my relative who uh, took the case pro, pro bono and got him off. So there's, and then his brother was um, also a, a lawyer in England and he defended the last quote unquote witch uh, in the Second World War. So I don't know. I think that there's a story there. Sounds interesting. So we'll wait for those. Um, given your experience now writing four novels, including the one that you said that you outlined and your agent did uh, thumbs down, I'm curious what advice would you have for aspiring writers who may be listening and are writing their own stories or novels? I'd say start with a compelling idea. The, the thing that um, the little worm inside your head, uh, that's where you start. And it doesn't have to start at the beginning, but start with the thing that grabs your interest and follow that. Um, I, I'd say that it, what's essential for, for my books and for the books I enjoy reading is an interesting character, um, and I so I'd say that the the focus would have to be on that primary character, uh, and and the objective to explore that character's complexity. So with those two things, I think plot will flow organically. Great. What books, fiction or nonfiction, have you read recently that made an impression on you and that you would recommend? Um, well, let me tell you what's been on my 
on my um, bedside table for over a year. It's this big, thick book called Behave by Robert Sapolsky. I don't know if you've heard of it. I have. Um, the Biology of Humans at Our Best and Our Worst. It, this is just a fascinating read. Um, uh, it's kind of wonky, um, but there's so much humor and so much depth that gives a very rounded understanding of human nature. Um, I'm into that stuff, but also I think just as a writer, uh, you know, to understand human motivation and and where that germinates from is really interesting. So that's one book I recommend. I've yet to finish it. Um, but then I'm reading um, an essay by, well, it was edited by Daniel Jones, who um, oversees the Modern Love column in the New York Times. I've, I've just enjoyed those um, essays so much. And then Anne Patchett wrote um, uh, another collection of essays, and I don't know why I didn't read it when it first came out. It's called This is a Story of a Happy Marriage. Uh, it's, it's, she's just a brilliant writer, and I, I particularly like her nonfiction um, work. And then my all-time favorite author is Alice Munro. She's Canadian. Um, she, she's just a distinguished writer. I'm busy reading Hatred, Friendship, Courtship, Loveship, Marriage. And her other one that I so enjoyed was Dear Life. So um, those are some recommendations I have. Everything by Joan Didion I, I read. Um, I'm also starting to read Colson Whitehead, and I'm late to that party. But I'm busy reading Zone 1. So that, that's a little sampling of, of my um, reading smorgasbord. Great. Well, where can people find you online if they'd like to learn more about you and your books? Islamorley.com. Uh, you can go to Pegasus Books and look under my name. Also, I'm on Facebook by my name, Isla Morley. You can find me on Instagram. My handle is at Blue Boots. That's B-L-U-B-O-O-T-Z. I do a lot of kind of interesting stuff uh, for writers on that. And I'm on Twitter at Isla Morley. Great. Well, again, we've been speaking with Isla Morley, author of the new novel, The Last Blue. Go grab a copy of the novel now. And Isla, thanks for doing this interview. Hey, Jeff. Thanks for having me. All the best to you. Great. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. 
Saving money on your outdoor project? Now at Menards. We have everything you need to keep your outdoor power equipment running smooth so you can keep that lawn in tip-top shape or enjoy some time on your boat. Right now, all FVP, lawn and garden, and marine batteries are on sale through May 5th. Check out our entire selection of FVP batteries today and view our weekly flyer on Menards.com for more great deals. Save big- 